for Gene Shepard, author, raconteur, and commentator of the contemporary scene. Here's Gene. nutty season, you know. You'll notice that I'm wearing a tie. It lights up, that's right. If you look on the other side, it's got a naked lady on it, but it is a tie. Now, uh... <laughs> I mean, you, what, what are you going to do about it? You know, you, when you're influenced by that kind of... I, I'm, I'm influ I was influenced by, in this direction when I was a kid. You know, what can you do? My old man, for example, used to bring home these things that he put under the coffee table to get my mother all, you know, she'd flip. She'd, she'd like to keep her house clean, you know. The old man to get these little plastic things. Looks like some, some dog been visiting the, you know. And and she'd come in, she'd see that under the table, and she'd scream, oh, you know. The old man would sit there, and he'd laugh and pick his teeth. You know, he had these rubber toothpicks he'd give to his friends. Well, yeah, he was, he was a you know, practical joke type. He loved to do that. I'll never forget the time he brought home the box of chocolates. You ever seen those? And he gave it to my mother, see. He said, there's a celebrate the spring, and that they had uh, pink ribbons and all that stuff. And she said, oh, how nice. And he said, oh, it's all right. I just was walking along, and I thought of you, and it was a nice day. I just thought of you, and I just thought uh, you'd like a little gifty. And my mother, you know, she just flipped out, you know. Women love this kind of stuff. She said, oh, that's so nice. Here, she says, I'm going to pass it around. He said, no, no, I want you to have the first piece. I don't, but I bought it for you. Don't give it to the kids. It's for you. She said, well, all right. And she, you know, looks in there and picks out the biggest, juiciest chocolate, and she pops it in her trap. Was filled with liquid soap and cayenne pepper. I want to tell you, her, she had these aluminum rheostats she wore in her hair. You know, these curlers, they lit up. Radioactive. Let's see, old man. Now, and when, you, when you're influenced by that kind of stuff, what are you going to do? But uh, now, uh, another, uh, you want to hear more of them? 
Oh, no, he had millions of them. Like, for example, did you ever see the wax mouse gag? You never did? We had a wax mouse. And uh, this is another thing, see? The old man uh, uh, would come into the house, see, and there's, there's guests. My mother, like, for example, she would have the ladies over on Wednesday. They're sitting around eating bridge mix, playing pinochle or bridge or whatever it was, you know. And the heat come in there, see, and he's got his suit on. And, uh, you know, looking very official. And my mother would say, oh, have you met Mrs. Parker? And uh, Mrs. Parker sitting over there. Actually, my mother didn't talk like that. All her friends did. So uh, she says, have you met Mrs. Parker? My old man comes, oh, Mrs. Parker, glad to meet you. And he'd walk over there, and, of course, they're all sitting there clawing away at the bridge mix. And uh, the old man says, you might have had a little bridge mix? And he'd reach in the bridge mix. He did this many times, and it really works. He'd reach into the bridge mix. All of a sudden, it looks like a mouse has jumped out of the bridge mix. There's a mouse in it and run right up his sleeve. It goes zap up his sleeve. And he goes, oh, 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 there's a mouse. And he runs out, you know, he's flapping his arms, yelling, oh, the mouse, run up my sleeve. And the ladies all go, ah, oh. And uh, that's his wax mouse gag. Now, you know how he did it, huh? <laughs> did you know how he did it? He had a whack. Yeah, he's got a string, see, in the other hand, see? And the string goes up one, uh, right up his sleeve, see? It goes around his neck and uh, underneath his shirt, see? And way down under the other arm, see? And he carries this little wax mouse in his hand. It looks exactly like a real mouse, a little gray mouse, you know? had little eyeballs and everything, see? And then he just drop it in the, in the, in the, in the, in the bridge mix, see? When everybody's looking, he just drop it with his hand down. And then you see it, suddenly you see a mouse. He's, oh, oh, a mouse! Whoop! And then he whip his other hand, and up the mouse goes, up his sleeve. And, of course, the old man is running around down the basement. The ladies are screaming. So when you're influenced by that kind of stuff, what are you going to do? I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, the, 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 worst, the worst humor, the worst kind of humor is the practical joke. That's the worst. Now, uh, there are all kinds of practical jokes. Uh, and, and, and none of them worth a damn. And none of them. But there, there are all kinds of practical jokes. <laughs> All right, you know, I'll tell you others. Some of the most elaborate practical jokes. You know, one of the most famous practical jokers in history, if you like those terrible jokes. Of course, uh, uh, I've seen some bad ones, Paul, but uh, like the time, well, I'll tell you, uh, one of the worst practical jokes that ever happened. Did you hear about the one in the, in the, uh, in the opera house? The famous opera house in, in uh, London? Well, see, a practical joker has a special type of mind. To begin with, he has a mind that's vaguely atrophied. You gotta understand that, you know, because the practical joke next to the pun is the worst kind of humor there is. I mean, you know, after all, you you, you see, have you ever seen a whoopee cushion that you, uh, being used? You don't know what it is. Well, I'm not going to explain it to you, friend. If you don't know what a whoopee cushion is, then you know I'm not, I'm not going to be the one to to bust your innocence there. So you ask your local decadent friend what it is, and he'll tell you. So uh, I've seen these in use. So that's the kind of life I've lived. Well, I'll tell you one of the worst sneaky, rotten, stinking, practical jokes that was ever pulled in history. It's a famous one. Uh, and it's the, if you know anything about the history of practical jokes, you know this one. That there was a famous member of the peerage in England. This was back in the 1890s. In fact, it's such a famous joke that it has survived, and people still talk about it. And that's making it, man, for a practical joker. When they're talking about it 70 years later, you know, that's something else. Well, what he did, you know, he had some money. He's getting kind of old, and he figured he can't take it with you, you know. And uh, he had some dough. And uh, so he decided to have an opera party for his friends, uh, which included the large numbers of the peerage, you know, knights and ladies, baronets and baronesses and all that kind of stuff, see. 
So with that, he had this fantastic dinner party before the opera. And he specified that they must wear, it was the summer, in the, you know, kind of like in May, and he specified that the gentlemen must wear white coats. The gentlemen must wear white coats, and the ladies must be dressed in white. And uh, it was a kind of thing. They called it a white celebration or something like that. See? So they did. They all came, and the ladies were dressed in white coats, white uh, beautiful gowns and all that stuff, and they're all sitting around at the tea party and having this elegant afternoon. And then the carriages came up, see, to take them to the opera. Well, he, his, he had his man hand out their engraved tickets, which they had received to this performance of Lohengrin which is a very elegant opera, and this famous German opera company was in town with the famous tenors and the famous Wagnerian sopranos, and the, all the critics were going to be, you know, big first night type thing, see. Well, these tickets were worth like, you know, like 40 bucks a shot. So he gave them these beautiful engraved tickets, and the entire entourage proceeded to go to the opera in the, in the beautiful carriages and stuff. They arrive that night, and the flashbulbs are going, and they're coming through, and the people are cheering. It's, you know, the Duke of Gloucester or somebody's having his elegant uh, once-every-20-year opera party. It's a big celebration. And so everybody had his ticket, see? And these were all reserved seats. They didn't just go and sit down. Every seat in the opera house was reserved, so everybody had a number, you know, uh, seat uh, L10, or, and uh, his wife would be seat uh, L12. And so they all walked in different, all over the house, see? And the house lights begin to dim, and everybody is sitting down now, and everybody is quietly waiting for the opera to go up. You know, the stage begins to light. There's a little slight glow from the orchestra pits, and you could hear the orchestra tuning up the dramatic moment. And then suddenly, a curious rumbling began to be heard from the upper tiers. You know, the golden horseshoe, the diamond horseshoe, all the elegant boxes. All around the opera. Remember, this opera house has about 15 stories that go all the way on up, see? And all the, the peers and the peeresses, the ladies with the white dresses and the men with the white coats, are sitting down on the ground floor. And the orchestra conductor raises his baton, you know, and he goes, you know. And the first notes sound, bum, 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 bum. But the crowd is not with it. You can hear a lot of mumbling and finally angry yelling. And occasionally you'd hear somebody jump up and holler, Oh, sir! This, sir! That's a vulgar display! Down on the floor, in white coats and in white evening gowns, in beautiful block letters, was spelled an incredibly obscene word. <laughs> the peers and the peeresses of the realm spelled a four-letter word, the kind like you see about every five minutes in the subway. And I might point out, in an opera house, it's a somewhat unusual sight. And the, and the ladies all kept looking around. You know, what's everybody mad at? You know, what are they all looking down? And people started to say, stop, stop! This is an obscene display! Remember, this is the 1890s. They arrested 427 peers and peeresses for obscene display in public. <laughs> Hold it. <laughs> now, that is, friends, a practical joke. And none of them knew it. See, the point is, not one knew what he was doing. He just went to a seat and sat down. Everybody else was dressed in black tie that night. And it just made a beautiful display. That's a legendary one. Uh, do you want to hear another uh, legendary? Uh, uh, this, this one here is talked about often. It happened in Hollywood. It's another one of those. 
And, uh, you know, the trouble, you know what the trouble with a, with a great practical joke is? There's not much you can do with it afterwards. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's one big bop and that's it, see? Well, that, that, this is a famous practical joke that was pulled on a guy uh, in, in, uh, in Hollywood who shall go unnamed. He was a very famous actor in the 1930s. Also a very famous lush, by the way. He's, he's famous for his, uh, you know, he loved to soup it up, see? And so uh, this friend of his was a famous director, uh, was a, a man with an evil turn of mind, you know? And uh, so he, he, he plotted this whole thing. And so one Saturday night, they went out to this party that he was giving, of course. And it was a party where all the, anything goes, you know, all, all the booze you want. And, of course, this uh, lush actor, whenever, whenever you mention, you know, free booze, this guy started to just suck. He'd, say, he'd just drink anything that you'd shove in front of him. He loved it, see. So it's free booze night at, the, you know, the big director, see. So uh, he's lushing it up. He's drinking the stuff. And, they, and of course, he's giving them the best stuff. Uh, it's a very important, you know, if you want to really get a guy going, give him good stuff, see. So he's giving him this 12-year-old bourbon. He just keeps drinking it down, uh, 12-year-old bourbon. Then he, then he brings out the champagne, and he drinks some of the champagne, beautiful champagne. Well, of course, by 10 o'clock that night, he is skunked. I mean, he is blotto. Because he was the kind, you know, would drink himself in, un, insensible, see. So, blah, he's laying there hollering, you know. And, and everybody says, come on, have another one, you know. And blah, he drinks another one. And sir, sure enough, Zap, he's out. He's laying there. Well, with that, the director picks him up, and he spirits him away. And they say, I'll take him home, see. Well, his buddies who were in on the gag says, okay, let's go, see. So they take him home to his house. Now, remember, they have been out, he's been out of his own house, see, for like uh, 12 hours or so, see, because he come to the party and all that stuff. And they, they, they put him in his bedroom. On the floor. They just lay him on the floor. But before they do that, they, they completely undress this guy, and they put on him a shroud, which they got at a local funeral party. You know what a shroud, like, you know, the, the kind of thing, you know, it looks like a ghost. See, they put a shroud on this guy. See, he's completely brought, he didn't know what, he's asleep. See, he didn't know what's going on. They lay him out on the floor, see. Okay. Well, hours go by. This guy's laying there sound asleep. And now the house is empty. Sound asleep. Hours go by. Well, now it's about 10 o'clock the next morning. And he's starting to slowly come to us. Starts to look Looks around. His head is as big as five watermelons blown up with gas. And his tongue, you know, see, his tongue feels like a roll of barbed wire. Ugh. You know that terrible feeding. Ugh. You know he has this feeding like the the, the the Yugoslavian army has marched right through his mouth. You know, in their stocking feet. Makes up his eyeballs are bugging. Well, he's used to this. See, this guy's living a life of nothing but hangovers. See, so he's just laying there waiting for things to calm down. Is waiting for his eyes to focus. See, he figures it's all going to go away. See, and his eyeballs are laying there, and he's wobbling around, and his eyeballs are spinning. But it ain't going away. He's looking up at the ceiling. And he's looking up. He's looking up at his bed. He sees his bed on the ceiling. It ain't coming down. He looks over to the left. 
and he sees his chest of drawers where he keeps all his false wigs and stuff up on a ceiling. Ain't no ceiling. He's laying on a ceiling, see? He looks around. And he right next to him is the light fixture on the ceiling. You know with the bulbs? He's floating upside down in his own house. He's laying on the ceiling. He crawls flat. He's, he's, he's afraid he's going to fall now. See? He crawls into the next room. All the dining room furniture is up there. My God Almighty. And then he looks at it. And he sees it. He sees what he's wearing. It takes about five milliseconds to hit him and then... I'm dead. I died last night. I'm dead. I'm dead. My God, I'm dead. He crawls into... He's, he figures if he pours water on his head, he'll stop being dead. He crawls into the john. The bathtub is above him. Well, for over 15 hours, this guy crawled around in the house. And the people all around, you know, the next house, once in a while, they'd hear him yell. They'd hear it come out. He was dead, and he was in heaven or hell or something. Well, then, they, 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 they fixed it. They really, they really put the last nail in on this guy's lammer. He could see up at the top of the room there what looks like the ceiling. What looks like the, he's on the ceiling, and that's the floor up there because the rugs were up there, everything up there, see? He sees on this coffee table what's up there. His phone is ringing. His phone is ringing up there. And he starts crawling up the wall. See, he's crawling, he grabs a hold of the thing, and he takes a hold of the phone, and he pulls it down. He says, hello, hello, hello. And this boy says, are you ready to meet your maker? Are you, are ready, you ready to, to pay? pay? He falls back. He's getting a telephone call from God. He hangs up the phone, and it hangs, it dangles. <laughs> and that was the first instant that he realized he'd been had. His phone was dangling. Once he took it off, they had glued it up there. See, once he pulled it off, it hung. His phone is dangling, and he struggles to the front door, see? And he opens the door and crawls out, and there's 28 million people waiting. They have gotten all the Hollywood reporters, everything. And he walks, you know, staggering out, wearing his shroud, his face is fear showing out of every pore. And they all, you know. <laughs> that, by the way, is a story that has been suppressed for many. This is a famous story. And you know that that guy, that guy went so totally on the wagon from that instant on that he became known as a famous party poop. 
This guy wouldn't even let people drink Coke at his parties. Because he was afraid he was going to die when he... <laughs> well, now, listen, I'll tell you other ones. I mean, you, I, I shouldn't tell you this. That one of the worst jokes that I ever saw played, a real... Uh, it, it caught me. Have you ever been caught in one? A real one. Well, listen, I was caught in one. I want to tell you, I was really caught in one one time. I'm in this radar company. Now, I, I, this is in the Army. We're, uh, tonight, uh, Steve, we're talking about the, the worst kind of humor there is. There's just no humor involved. Is the, is the practical joke. That's terrible. Oh, ugh. You know. Well, if you've ever been caught in one, you even hate them more. And I was caught in one. I'm in this radar company. See, Company K, and uh, we're, we're deep in the heart of this jungle. And it is hot. Oh, my God Almighty, it's hot. The temperature is like 105 degrees all the time. Terrible. Not only is it hot all the time, the humidity is like 400%. can't believe that the air can have that much water in it. You just wave your arm like that, and you got a big, you know, handful of water. You just go like, shh, and the water pours out of the air. You could cause rainstorms by clapping like that. It would clap, you know, the rain would come down. Oh, man, it was hot. Heat, rash. But that isn't what bothered us. You can get used to weather. You know what bothered us? Our radar set. We had a radar set that had 15,000 volts on the plate. Now, I don't know whether you know about 15,000 volts, but back in the days when they used to have electric chairs, they were operated at about 1,800 to 2,000 volts. So you can figure what 18,000 volts are. Now, are you ready for even more bad news? It was 15,000 volts at 1.5 amps. That is powerful stuff. That's roughly enough power to blow up the city of Trenton. Just like that. Now, I'm not kidding. That has a lot of, a lot of Google. Well, this thing, it, it, our power supply came in a big package about the size of a 10 by 12 room. About 7 foot high. And it, and it operated on trucks. It had a great big set of wheels on it. It was called a prime mover's thing. Tremendous power supply. And it had a big, a, a, a great big wheel on it. Now, that wheel was the Variac. Now, that Variac, when you turned that thing up, see, it increased the power on our radar equipment. Well, now, when this thing was fully fired up, this radar, this piece of radar gear stood something like 60 feet in the air. Big baby, see. Had these great big parabolic reflectors. Enormous, like great big ears, you know, standing up there. It was all painted this G-I-O-D green. And, uh, oh, we got so scared of that thing. There were rumors floating around about what it had done to guys. First of all, one of the most evil rumors, I'll never forget the time the rumor came around. I'm sitting up there on the asthma scope one day. Got a pair of earphones on my head, you know, and looking into that scope... Well, one of the guys says into the cans, hey, did you hear what this stuff does to you? I said, what? What stuff? It's the radiation out of this thing. I said, what? Makes you sterile. Whap. It hit the entire company. Our radar set was not only taking our life out, squeezing our veins, sucking our juice out, it was making us sterile on top of it. So we'd circle around that radar set. Man, that was the enemy. And it went 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day with this generator set back in the, in, the, in the vines there. And it was called the Leroy engine. 
And it, you ever hear the Leroy generator? Yeah, see? So we go... You listen to that 24 hours a day, man, and your head is popping. I mean, you just sort of jiggle to that temperature, to that beat. I mean, you'd lay in your bunk and it goes night and day. Try that on for size for two and a half years, friends, and you'll know that your head has turned to jelly. Well, it's popping away there, see. The biggest fear we had, though, was that 15,000 volts. There were rumors that in one company one time, three GIs were working on the power supply, and it had been turned off for over three weeks. And just the power retained in the condensers. Boom! Ionized. Three GIs. Nothing found of them. Just pow! Ionized. Three GIs turned into a purple haze. And they just blew away when the wind came. Well, we were scared. And every couple of days, we'd have to turn this thing down, see, and check the tubes and all that jazz. That's when it scared us. Because then you'd have to start messing with them controls, turning it down. And one day, we're down for repairs. We've been tuning the antennas. We've been working on the power supply and doing something with the, with the azimuth scope. And we start to fire up. Lieutenant Cherry comes out of his tent. He says, all right. Okay, you guys over there in the power supply, turn out the filaments. Throw them filaments on. I want to see them filaments on those 1600s on now. Let's go. And so, gung, 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 gung. Guys are throwing relays. And every time they throw a relay, you know, they start moving back. You know, gung, gung. Red lights, green lights are going on. Blue lights, gung, gung, gung. Now the filaments are on. So two minutes go by, and the big green light comes on. means the tubes are warmed up. It's ready to go. With that, Lieutenant Cherry says, All right, turn it up to... Two kilovolts. Two kilovolts. Give me two kV on a plate. And so so poor old Ernie, he grabs a hold of that big wheel, see, and he starts to turn it up. And the meter goes up to two kilovolts. Now, and whenever we started to turn up that 15,000 volts, guys would start backing away, see, because we always expected it. For a year and a half, we expected that thing to blow up. You know how it is? You expect disaster all your life, and you never really are ready for it when it hits. So Ernie turns it up to two kV. And so Lieutenant Cherry says, Everything reading okay up there? You guys up on the top? Everything reading all right? So we say, Yo, yo, you know, you know how it is, George, whenever anybody asks you, yo, holler, yo, yo. So he says, Turn it up to 3 kV. Everything reading okay up there? Yo, 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 yo. Everybody's reading his meter. All right, turn it up to 4 kV. Move it up now. Come on, let's go. Ernie turns it up to 4 kV, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, out of the top of that power supply pack, there's a thin wisp of blue smoke. It's coming out, and a sound is going... <laughs> Every GI in a place dove for the ground. We had had built, over the years, we had built these beautiful these beautiful slit trenches and stuff that nobody ever used. And all of us stove in the slit trenches. And our big power supply is going... Blue smoke is pouring out of it. Blue smoke is training to the skies. The guys are laying there. Everybody figures it's all over. It's now going. And then it goes... 
made a little pop. And then out of the inside of it came the sound of a siren. And we all laid there and waited. And then we realized somebody had stuck one of those bombs in this thing. You know the kind of bombs that they put in cars and it says turn on the ignition, surprise your friends? You ever seen those? You didn't. You've heard, haven't you ever heard of those that make a whistling sound and then they blow up and make smoke? Oh, listen, that, that's responsible for a lot of unexpected laundry bills, friends. Unexpected. And we just lay there, and Lieutenant Cherry come up out of his hole with his G.I. helmet on. He's all right. I'm going to find out who put that damn bomb in that power supply, or I'm going to bust every stripe in his outfit. Now, any of you know who done it? I'm going to bust you right down to buck. That's been censored. Now, all you get out of them holes, and we're going to start an investigation. We never did find out who did it. All I know is, from that time on, nobody really took radar seriously. Just sort of a big tinker toy. to Gene Shepard, author, raconteur, and commentator on the contemporary scene.